Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. Hey, good morning, everybody. Here we go. It is Money Talk for Saturday, July 21st on WTMJ. My name is Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, is here. Good morning, Derek. Good morning, Danny. And Dave Spano, President, Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. And we should say welcome Milwaukee visitors, like the beginning of Laverne and Shirley, right? Because there's a lot going on. We've got an air show in town. Yep. we got Festa. We even maybe got some hungover Country Thunder people listening. Brewers and, of course, and the Dodge, Brewers. Yeah. right? So yeah. a lot of stuff going on. Good time to be in. Of course, you need an umbrella. You needed an arc to get here. Yeah. today, Danny, but a lot of stuff going on. But the most important thing, as far as we're concerned, uh, Derek, is for sure we are in the middle of earnings season, or actually at the beginning of earnings season, and we are expecting another solid quarter. And in fact, north of 20% year-over-year growth for the quarter, and, and a bunch of names that, that we've watched as well. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, up to this point, 85 of the 500 S&P 500 companies reported and we're actually seeing 10% sales growth, which is well above expectations, and earnings growth of 23%. So the second quarter is turning out to be as, as strong as we had thought, and that really shouldn't be much of a surprise to people because GDP is expected to be up 35 to 4% in the second quarter as well. Can I ask a rookie question? Sure. I always thought Alcoa led things, but didn't some bank earnings come in before Alcoa? Yeah, the bank earnings were out last Friday, and, and they were generally positive. In fact, the stocks didn't react much last week, but this week, actually, they've gotten a, a real boost, and we've seen other companies like Wells Fargo, was, which is another major bank, reported earlier this week and actually was a positive surprise. J.P. Morgan was solid. Uh, there were some issues with some of the other bank reports, but but generally the banking system is doing well. And with the yield curve as as the, the slope of the yield curve is as shallow as it is, they're actually weathering that storm pretty well so far. And I don't want to leave the earnings conversation because there's a lot of other companies I do want to talk about. But you've touched on something that is very interesting, and that is these this yield curve. And of course there was some conversation with Chairman Powell as well as he testified before Congress. He did. He testified for, for a couple of days, and he basically told the Congress that with strong economic growth and what, what he sees as stable inflation, that the central bank will continue to raise rates, provided uh, nothing changes in terms of the data or geopolitics. This has always has been a, a part, of, part of our show for a long time. In fact, you know, the last nine or ten years, we have talked a lot about the Federal Reserve, and for obvious reasons, the most important is that lower interest rates are good for the economy and are good for equity prices. But as these rates start to go up, it causes some concern for the economy. And can you explain that to our listeners? Well, well, typically, you know, the yield curve, the inversion of the yield curve itself doesn't cause a recession, but Fed activity can. So, for example, if the market believes the Fed is tightening 
too quickly. They'll be pushing short-term rates up at the very same time that the bond vigilantes will be pushing longer rates down. And that's basically how you get to an inverted yield curve. So in some ways, it's coincident with a recession. So what we have to watch is, A, that, that yield curve. But B, really, what is the economy doing and how is the Fed going to react to things that are happening you know, globally, not just you know, tariff talk, uh, what's going on with the EU, what are they doing in terms of, of buying uh, fixed income securities, what's the Bank of Japan doing, and, and what, in, what inflation is doing. So all of these are the things we focus on. But generally speaking, when interest rates are going up, that's because the economy is doing well. You know, and Jeremy Siegel, who is a famous professor, of course, and you know all about that, and I want you to explain uh, your connection to him, but he's somebody that I've read you know, for more than 30 years in this business in the fact that there's a connection between bear markets and rising interest rates and what the Fed does. But who is Jeremy Sickle? Well, he was, he was actually my faculty representative when I was at, at Wharton Business School, and, and he's been there for I, almost 30 years at this point, and he's obviously been a very you know, well-regarded uh, stock market commentator over those years. And, and, and essentially, bull markets are, are built on, on on an easy Fed, and, and bear markets are typically created by a less easy Fed. And, and right now, the Fed is transitioning gradually. Uh, so there are many people who are looking at this nine-year bull market as, as old and, and so on. But typically, bull marks, markets don't end of old age. They really do die because of activities of the Federal Reserve. And I have always found that interesting. And the fact is, if you're listening, you'd have to ask, why is the Fed doing that if it could bring on an end to an economic activity. And one of the obvious reasons, I would think, is because they need that tool and they don't have it right now. Absolutely. I mean, rates have been unnaturally low for a long period of time. We often talk about what Fed funds rate is relative to the rate of inflation and the like. And currently, even with rates at these levels, the Fed is still relatively accommodative given current levels of inflation. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management, sticking around. On the way, I'm going to talk a little bit about prenups, prenuptial agreements, and also self-directed 401ks for government employees. It's coming up, Annex Wealth Management Show on WTMJ. Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ for Saturday the 21st. I'm Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky, our Chief Investment Officer, is here, and so is Dave Spano. We're talking earnings reports. Before we went to break, we said there was a number of names that we want to talk about. We certainly talked about the financial stocks in the relation to interest rates and so on, but there was a lot of other earnings that came out, Derek, and some of them were interesting. Yeah, we saw a couple of good reports from the industrial sector. General Electric and Honeywell both uh, reported better-than-expected results and raised guidance. And then in the tech sector, uh, Mike Microsoft uh, blew the quarter away. I mean, the stock's up a lot, so probably sold off a little bit on the news. I found that very interesting that they were doing so well, and it's it was cloud-based. I mean, that's not what you think of generally when you think of Microsoft. No, Microsoft has migrated their business model. It's more of a service model now, which is obviously more efficient for them. And in addition, their web-based service business is just exploding, just like Amazon's is. And what's interesting coming forward, though, is we have Amazon, which is going to report on July 26th, and then Apple, another FANG stock, will report on July 31st. And, you know, there's a really, a, a, it's a horse race to see which of those two companies is going to get to a trillion-dollar market cap first. Currently, Amazon's market cap is about $40 billion less than Apple's, but their growth rate is substantially higher. So I'm, I'm sort of betting on Amazon over Apple, but we'll see. And we talked about this uh, maybe about six months ago, and you and I uh, said who's going to be there. I said Apple, but uh, it's a horse race at this point. It's it's kind of fun to watch. It really doesn't mean much other than it's an interesting story. But you think about Jeff Bezos and his uh, his net worth now tied to Amazon is just off the charts. What's it, $150 billion? 
I'm, you know, I think I, it is. It's, it's gone up so much yeah. I've lost count. You know, I mean, what's what's another couple billion, of billion right? right at this point? And as far as the technicals uh, as as well, you know, we think that earnings are going to do well. But you know what I found interesting as well was the GE and Honeywell story. Both of those who aren't in tax, uh, they did very well as well. Yeah, the global economy continues to do to do well. It's not as strong as it was earlier in the year. So that synchronized global growth story has weakened somewhat. There are problems in countries like Brazil and and Argentina and the like. But generally, corporate America is doing extremely well, and that's leading to tremendous cash flow growth, which is fueling more and more buybacks and dividend increases, which is something we've highlighted to our listeners for quite some time. You know, we talked about low interest rates will allow that to happen because the companies then have to put that money to work, and they can do that in a number of ways. M&As, well, stock buybacks is part of that. And right now, there's an argument that's because of low taxes as well as low interest rates. Right. In, in Q1, we saw $172 billion in stock buybacks. And, and some analysts are expecting as much as $340 billion this quarter. So the supply of stocks available to investors is going down at the same time that fixed income markets aren't just aren't quite as attractive as they've been you know, in the past with interest rates poised to increase over the long haul. So dividend-focused investors are actually having a field day watching their dividends increase, watching stock buybacks limit the supply of these particular stocks, and the valuations are still felt relatively reasonable relative to interest rates and where we were at the beginning of the year. Can you take me to school real quick? Why would a company buy their own stock back? Well, they're, they're basically getting a return. Right. And there's, well, there's less shares. And so let's just assume that there is a thousand shares and you have to balance that against the profit, right? And now if you buy back 100 shares, there's only 900 shares to balance the rest of that profit over, and therefore the share price has got to go up. And so it does make sense, and of course they are getting a return on their assets versus putting that, that money to work somewhere else. But indication of a very healthy company? For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and that they believe in it. It is. And, and the thing about stock buybacks is, you know, they, they work until they don't. And, and typically what happens is companies will buy back shares, but if the economy suddenly starts to weaken and we enter a recession, then all of a sudden they'll pull back because that cash can be better deployed doing other things. You know, essentially, it's a powerful boost to this bull market, but it's something that can be transitory. So I wouldn't, I don't want our listeners to think this is going to go on forever. And Derek, there are less shares and there's not as many public companies, and that means the universe of where, where people can invest begin, continues to shrink. Well, right. And some of these indexes are actually misnomers, for example, one widely followed institutional index is the Wilshire 5000, but there are only 3,400 companies in it. Okay, what's the explanation of that? It's really kind of simple. You know, being a public company involves lots of extra costs, compliance costs, uh, you know, media scrutiny and the like. And, and some companies are better better served by remaining private, particularly early in their, their life cycle. For example, Uber and Airbnb are both companies that if they were publicly traded, would be trading at billion dollar, major billion dollar market caps. And, and it's, you know, the venture capital community and the private equity community have been slow to release those shares and, and take them public. Just don't tell me there's not 10 teams in the Big Ten. <laughs> there's <laughs> not. Some hate to tell you. Dave Spano, Derek Fels keep sticking around the rest of the hour. It is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. 
Sometimes personal finance and planning collides with life, and that's what we're going to talk about. Deanne Phillips, our Director of Client Learning and Development, is here. Hi, Danny. You are CFP, Certified Financial Planner. You're also a CDFA. What is that? Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. We're going to talk about prenuptials, and people have heard that phrase for a long time, but let's review. A prenuptial agreement, it's commonly called a prenup, is actually a contract, and you enter into that contract prior to marriage or civil union. Usually, it includes provisions for division of property, spousal support, and you know, in the case of the event of a divorce or a breakup of the marriage. You know, in the vast majority of states, marital assets are divided equitably, but not necessarily equally. And those two words are words we hear in divorce settlements a lot. Now, Wisconsin's a little different because we're a marital property state. So, Danny, if you and I were married, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Okay. So it's a little different. As soon as we were to commingle any kind of assets, they would be considered marital property. So basically what the prenup does is you make an agreement to be very out front and show all your finances ahead of time and also your debts. Who really needs a prenup? Perhaps if you own property or a business and children from a previous marriage. Okay, a couple is gonna get married Mm -hmm. and in the prenup is an understanding of somebody's responsibility to take time off to raise the children. So they're out of the workforce. A lot of times, unfortunately, we are seeing more gray divorces, those are divorces over the age of 50, where usually it is in that demographic, the woman who stayed at home to raise the kids. And so in that case, if a millennial entering into a contract would be concerned about that, they could always say if one of the couple decides to stay at home, they could write provisions for should they split the other person paying to help them get back on their feet, whether it's extra education or having that kind of, it's called alimony or support continue until they're up to speed on a new job. What isn't factored into a prenup? What can you leave out? Well, you can leave out issues of custody or support for future children. (laughs) So these are children that wouldn't exist when the prenup is drawn up. Correct. So if you have previous children, yes, you want to include them. But no, it's the, so if you and I were entering into our second marriage, and then we might have kids in the future. Okay, you had us married once, now we're going into our second marriage. (laughs) All right, okay. okay. (laughs) So um, we wouldn't talk about future children that didn't exist because really the the rights that are given to those children are their rights. It's not the parents to determine. Now, I guess you could you could say and state this is how we agree right now going into this marriage. We would treat the children and what we'd give them. But really, that goes back to the court. You're, you're a certified divorce financial analyst. You see this a lot. But it seems that when you're doing a prenup, you almost think it's destined not to work. It's risk management is what it really is. And remember, over a third of millennials grew up with either a single parent or divorced parents. So they saw things not work out. So it's just a prudent contract, especially, you know, if they are getting married later. They have a career established, and we have to remember our career is also an asset. When should somebody talk about a prenuptial? Even before you get engaged, to kind of discuss and know. Unfortunately, we have had clients that come to us and said, you know, it's, it's after the fact. They've remarried again, and now they're like, gee, I kind of didn't know what I was walking into. And that makes planning a little more difficult then you have to go round about to kind of look up the debt look up because remember when you marry your credit your credit combines too mm-hmm. debtors don't care all of a sudden you are legally responsible for your spouses in this case me right debt yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you yeah. and I are married so you oh, have to know that now. we're back okay. together right. so you have to know that when you're entering into it assets and liabilities but also I'm thinking about my own situation my husband and I kind of took a look at each other before we got married and said which one of us really would have more capacity in many ways 
space to further our career as an asset. Okay. And so we made decisions that he would help raise our kid if sure. we had one, you know, and that I would continue on with much more school. And that's a decision that certainly if you go into an understanding of Obviously, there would be inequitable income there. Yeah. So you have to think about that. But you well, have to allow time. My wife found a study one time that said what it would cost to replace a stay-at-home oh, mom. It, it's, it does. I, couldn't, I, I don't have that much money. It's terrible because if you think about it, all the jobs that people who stay at home do, besides the child caretaker, they schlep them around yeah, you know, as right. they get older. They may cook. They may clean. I mean, think about all those different duties you'd have to replace. Well, and it's three eight-hour days. It is. Right? And, and you never off-duty, right? Right. Is it one attorney for the couple? No, you should not do that in the state of Wisconsin. It's okay, for example, all right, you and I are back to getting a divorce, Danny. Okay. Sorry. Oh, uh, didn't if, work out. Huh? If you decide you want to hire an attorney and I des- for your behalf and I decide I don't want one, that's okay. But you shouldn't have the same attorney represent you both. You know, prenup can run around $2,500 and up, depending upon complexity. For each? It kind of depends. Again, if we're back to you having an attorney and I'm not. Okay. So you have to shop that around. But it is important. It's a it's a contract that hopefully you'll never have to invoke. But if you do, it will save you a lot of time, money, and trouble on the back end. But it does need to be in writing and signed by both parties. And it does have to be in contemplation of a marriage contract. Oh, you got something coming up at the Burner Botanical Gardens. We do. So this is part of our Women, Wealth, and Wisdom group, Danny. And this is a group of women of all ages that get together and we discuss in a coordinated uh, conversation and outline issues that are pertinent to women. So in this one, we're doing Teaching My Family to Give. And we call it a garden tour, planting the right seeds for our family and the future, just like we would tend a garden. We're getting docent-led tour around the botanical gardens, and then we have this wonderful discussion as a group. We still have just a couple of slots left, and that is next Tuesday, the 24th, from 6 to 9 at the Burnham Botanical. You do have to go to our website, though, and RSVP for it. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, we say uh, know the difference. It is team, it is technology, and it's trust. And let me just talk about uh, Deanne a little bit. Um, she's part of the team, and she is um, very, very knowledgeable. And if what you hear from her matches up with the way that you think and the way you like to be treated, uh, you can give us a call at 262-786-6363. Location-wise, Annex Wealth Management is just about everywhere, and I'm going to get to that in a sec. But our headquarters in Elm Grove, we got an office in Mequon right off of 43, easy to find. Lake Country, we got you covered on Sun Valley Drive. Appleton, we're up in Appleton on College Avenue. Fister is our newest office. That is downtown. We'd love to meet you down there. And then we've got Annex Everywhere, and more on that in a little bit. But if you can hear us, we can meet with you using technology. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. So every week, Annex Wealth Management publishes something called the Axiom, which is a series of articles, uh, some of its clips from different radio shows or its or informational pieces. The one we had in the last couple of weeks was written by Ron Johnson, our senior financial planner and CFP and part of the planning department. Ron, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. We talked about car loans. Tell me how you came about to write that article. What, what was the idea on that one? I was doing some reading myself and I came across some interesting information. I noticed or 
I read that car loans annually are increasing, and according to Experian, the average car loan for a new car in the United States has climbed to over $31,000. So they're climbing in the actual amount of the loan, and they're also climbing in the length of the loan. Yep. They're getting close now to just under six years. As a financial planner, how does that strike you? The way I look at it is, obviously, we, in today's society, most of us need transportation to function, to get to work, to get our kids to school and so forth. But there's a difference between buying a, a vehicle to, to get us around and then buying that fun vehicle, the sports car or the luxury vehicle that can cost two and maybe even three times the amount of a, a basic vehicle. So from a planning perspective, we look at that as a luxury or a, a goal to attain. So if you're considering buying that car, and, and by no means are we saying that's wrong, I, we think it's a lot of fun to go out there and purchase that really cool car. But we think there should be a few things in place before you consider that. So, Ron, you had basic items you should probably have in place prior to purchasing a dream vehicle. What were they? Two things that we feel are really important to have in place before you look at purchasing that vehicle. First of all, you should look at saving at least 10% of your gross income coming into your house to go towards an emergency savings account. So this is money set aside in case something happens, like a job loss or a big expense, maybe a giant house repair, money to fall back on when times are tight. You should be funding that with about 10% of your income. Fund that first, but you'll get to a point where you'll stop funding that, right? True, although this could be a good path to building wealth as well. Just keep on building that. And then, and then the other thing that you want to make sure you're doing is at a minimum, 10 to 12% of your gross income should be going towards retirement, either in an IRA, a Roth IRA, or a 401k, 403b, whatever's available to you you should be saving money into that type of account so you have funds available for when it's time to retire. I'm sure you run into people that do that. Okay, 10% into the emergency fund, 10 to 12% into the retirement fund, but you're talking 22% of gross pay. That's a, that's a lot. It, it is, and obviously this is going to change from individual to individual. Obviously, people with a lot more income come in the household, they can more comfortably put that type of income in, and maybe the percentage a little smaller. Uh, what we're talking about here is more rules of thumb. So you've checked off those boxes. Where, where do you go from there? Yeah, so now it's time uh, to look at, okay, so what's left over? How will that new car payment fit into your budget? Will it come at the expense of other goals, such as Maybe you like to take a large vacation each year, or perhaps you're funding college. Will you still be able to do those things and fund that car payment each year? And remember, these car payments now are going for five to six years. Do you find that the regular consumer, when they go into an auto dealership, might get in a little bit of trouble getting as these car loans lengthen? The figure I saw, Ron, was a $30,000 loan over five years at 6%. The car is going to cost basically almost $35,000. When you push it to seven years, it's in the mid-36,000s. First of all, when you walk into the dealership, remember that they're selling the car based on a monthly payment. Right From a marketing perspective, a car that costs $500 a month sounds a lot more enticing than a car that costs $35,000, doesn't it? Uh, so that's how they're going to sell it. So as a consumer, you need to understand that you should take that payment that they're selling you, multiply it times the term of the loan. That's how much you're going to pay. I know there's the emotional thing. You know, you want that car. We were, the article was about a dream car. Right. And I'll ask you this. What does Warren Buffett drive? <laughs> right. Legend has it what? An old car. Yep. 
Exactly. You know, that's an interesting question, and I actually pondered this myself for my family. So what we did was we considered the cost per year of a vehicle. So let's say a new car lasts 10 years, and maybe that cost me $1,800 a year. And maybe I figured that the used car, because it's already got miles on it, is only going to last me seven years. We take the cost of that car and divide it by the, the lifespan of that car and figure it out how much per year it's going to cost me for that. And then I did the comparison. Sometimes a new car is better. Sometimes a used car is better. Remember, I'm also assuming that I'm going to drive that new car longer. So it may not make sense for you if you're constantly trading in a car and going to buy the next latest, greatest thing. Typically, from a planning perspective, we want you to drive the car until it's exhausted. This is what you do in your department. You always say, from a planning perspective, you should never look at a car as an investment. It's an instantly depreciating asset. Yeah, it's a transportation expense. Sign up for the Axiom. You can do that at AnnexWealth.com. Each week, we're going to give you interesting articles and things to think about, like the article that Ron wrote. Ron, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Danny. Ron is part of the uh, planning department at uh, Annex Wealth Management. I really like those guys. They're just really, really smart, fun, innovative. They love to tackle situations. That sounds like a match for you. And we're talking about anybody that can hear this radio station, including folks in Illinois and Michigan and a little bit of Iowa. Uh, Annex Everywhere is for you. We can use technology. We can use Skype. We can use um, any type of video uh, to get with you and have a meeting. It's easy. It's Annex Everywhere, and you can start at AnnexWealth.com. Let's talk training camp, football fans. Wayne Larrabee here, reminding you that training camp is just around the corner. And while other fans watch from the stands, Lodge Kohler has an exclusive sideline spot with your name on it. Picture yourself standing on the field while your favorite team runs plays so close that you can hear the crash of pads with each tackle. See the ball spiral down the field and hear the shouts and banter of the team training together. There's nothing else like it. The Lodge Kohler Packers Sideline Package features a one-night stay, dinner at Tavern in the Sky, breakfast at Leaps and Bounds, savings on select services at Kohler Water Spa, and tickets to a sideline seat at training camp. Now there is your dagger. Visit LodgeColor.com to book your Packers sideline package today. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, July 21st. I'm Danny Clayton. Uh, Dave has now exited and gone to Festa. You knew that was going to happen, Mark Oswald. I'm sure he's at least tangentially involved yet today. <laughs> tangentially, very yeah, nice. Yeah. And Derek Felsker, Chief Investment Officer, is here as well. Let's have a little uh, chat about diversification. It's something that we talk about a lot. It's something people read about a lot, but do people think about it a lot? Well, I think that's a good point because I heard you guys talking earlier about the earnings season and what's happened with the stock markets over the last nine and a half or almost 10 years now. And Derek, when you start thinking about diversification, people have a tendency to say, you know, there's diversification for the sake of diversification, but is diversification a real strategy for long-term success? I mean, I think it absolutely is, Mark. So for example, you know, the S&P 500 is probably the most widely used exchange-traded fund out there. But if you think about it, the S&P 500 is, is a collection of 500 stocks, but all within one asset class, U.S. large cap. So that's something I would call depth diversification. The key differentiator between depth diversification and breadth diversification is by adding other asset classes, you improve the overall risk-adjusted returns of the portfolio, providing you're buying those assets at a reasonable valuation. 
Well, you brought something to the investment committee this week that looked at the performance of the U.S. stock market versus emerging markets, and that spread's getting bigger and bigger. It is. Emerging markets currently are trading at the largest discount to U.S. stocks in the last 16 years. And there we're talking about countries that are actually growing at a typically at a faster rate than the United States. So one would argue from a valuation perspective alone, emerging markets warrant some consideration in a truly diversified portfolio. And what I'm hearing you say is that some of those emerging markets might be on sale right now. They absolutely are. In fact, we're trading at about 10 to 12 times earnings in emerging markets, whereas the S&P you know, is running between 16 to 18, depending upon how you want to calculate the uh, price-earnings ratio. When we look at emerging markets, we've typically used active managers there because many of the ETFs that characterize emerging markets are loaded with state-owned enterprises like in China, where the Chinese government essentially controls the company, or they're heavy in terms of natural resources. And what we're really trying to get at in emerging markets is the growth of that middle-class consumer. Well, Derek, walk through that a little bit more for the listener, because I think that what we're talking about there is active management versus passive management. And when you're talking about an ETF that just, for instance, use EEM, the ticker symbol for the Emerging Markets ETF, you're going to get all kinds of different countries and all kinds of different companies. When you use an active manager, you have somebody with boots on the ground in these countries who's looking at the good companies, the bad companies, and the ugly companies, and hopefully making some sort of an evaluation of which companies that manager wants to buy. You know, the trade-off there is with EEM, you get a very low expense ratio, and typically active managers in emerging markets have a much higher than average expense ratio because it is expensive for a company to team a, a qualified group of analysts, a portfolio manager alike, do the travel it requires, do the due diligence it requires. But you often find that active management in areas like emerging markets really do add value, much more so than they do in the more uh, efficient asset classes like U.S. large cap. So even in the United States, when we look at diversification, the other thing you look at then is sectors of that market. So you look within the country, in this case the United States, and you say, where do we want to be tactically overweight and what sectors do we want to try to avoid? So we've done a nice job as an investment committee of picking the correct sectors for the last few years. Derek, real quick, what is overweight? We're comparing the asset allocation on a sector basis that our portfolio holds relative to an index, say, for example, the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 currently has about a 26% weighting in technology shares. Now, many of our individual funds own technology shares, but by adding tactical exposure, we enhance that weighting and get it over that 26% threshold. That's overweighting. Talk about what sectors we're overweight in and what sectors we're still trying to stay away from. Number one would be financials. We believe very much that the banks are, are relatively inexpensive relative to the rest of the market, uh, that their net interest margins are poised to improve as interest rates rise, uh, that some of the regulatory uh, burdens that they face after the financial crisis have, have basically been uh, executive ordered away, if you will. Another area that we like a lot is consumer discretionary. We felt for a long time that with the tax cuts and the like and consumer confidence at very high levels, that consumer discretionary companies like an Amazon, like some retailers, ought to do very well as consumer confidence translates into spending. Another area we've held as a tactical position, really since I've been with Annex, is an overweight in technology. Technology is continuing to uh, change the landscape, not just of the technology sector itself, but of other industries. We've seen you know, Amazon get into the grocery store business, for example. We've seen Microsoft migrate from being a desktop publisher to actually having a web interface that is growing, at, growing leaps and bounds, kind of like what Amazon's uh, uh, web services are doing. Uh, and the final, the final uh, diversification element that we've had 
had tactically is an overweight of health care. I mean, we all know about the, the tremendous demographics that the healthcare industry uh, enjoys. Uh, lots of growth, lots of innovation, biotechs, pharma, uh, healthcare services and the like trying to drive down costs. So those have been the four principal tactical overweights that we've had in our portfolios. And- and Derek, the ones that we've kind of stayed away from have been consumer staples and utilities and others. With rising interest rates now on the docket, perhaps for September, perhaps for December, are those sectors likely to rotate back to favor or will they still stay out of favor? Well, they're, they're principally seen as, as defensive sectors anyway. They tend to do better when the, the equity markets as a whole, when people's risk appetite abates. But the other thing about those sectors is that they got very expensive when, when investors, when you had the ability to buy a CD and you were getting less than 1%, the yields offered by REITs, by consumer staples, uh, by utilities looked really attractive. But now that rates are rising, you don't see the kind of growth in those sectors that you see in others. And you also have that interest rate risk, too, because as rates rise, they become somewhat less attractive. Derek Felsey, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. Mark Oswald, thanks for uh, jumping on with us today. You bet. Get professional help with your portfolio. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. At Annex Wealth Management, we like to talk about all aspects of financial planning. Government employees, kind of a different animal. And Jason Ganier is here. He's a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Hey, Jason. How you doing? Doing well. But you're the guy that's going to unravel that. Okay. So we got regular people, civilians, I guess, right? Correct. Then government employees. What does government employees cover? Well, government employees covers quite a bit. So you have what they call municipal employees, which if you work for a township, let's say you're a cop, or you work for a village or a city or a school district. So that's actually a separate government entity. Entity. If you work for a school district, you're a teacher. And then obviously there's county employees and state employees. So it's really a wide range of different entities and personnel and occupations within government. We should point out that you also do that. I mean, you are a law enforcement guy. Yeah, I have 25 years in law enforcement. And you know, one of my specialties here at Annex is working with other government employees, whether they be protective services, firefighters, police, but also teachers, DPW, any other government employee, even federal government employees. You know, it's a whole different system. But besides state and local, you have folks in the federal system. Most of the time you hear government jobs and people say, hey, nice, you got a government job. I mean, it is good, right? For for the most part, benefits are good. Yeah, benefits are good. They've changed over the years. Um, The biggest change we see is in health insurance. I would say that most government employees probably pay close to what some of their private sector counterparts pay in the realm of health insurance. The big difference really is those government pensions, which still most people have. And in the private sector, we've seen decreases in that over the years. Got it. Let's talk about Wisconsin Deferred Compensation. That's an official program. What is that? It's an employer-sponsored retirement plan. So it's a 457 plan, and that's a fancy way for the IRS to qualify what type of plan it is. There. So, so what is that equivalent to? For It'd policy? be like a 401k okay. in the private sector, or if you work for a school district, a hospital, a, a nonprofit, typically you have a 403b. But they're all employer-sponsored retirement plans where you can save additional monies from your paycheck towards your retirement goals. And it sounds like the choices are getting better. Was that the case? in the old days? Yeah, I would say so. I think now that pensions have been reduced and there's more awareness that people need to save, even if you have a pension, you need to save typically um, some of your income so you can maintain your lifestyle and also have things to be able to afford for health care in retirement. And everybody calls it Wisconsin Deferred Compensation. That's the official name? That's the official name. So that's a that's one employer plan. And most municipal employees will have access to that plan. Not all of them, but most municipal employers have that plan available because the Wisconsin Employee Trust Fund's 
set up this plan so government employers can go out and um, participate right away. They don't have to you know, interview different plan sponsors. One of the things that was in the news recently is this Schwab PCRA. What is that? PCRA is their brand name, Charles Schwab, for their personal choice retirement account. It's what they call a self-directed brokerage account. So when you sit down with your 401k, or in this case, Wisconsin Deferred Comp, you have different investment choices to make. And it's usually a pretty small list. And the reason it's a small list is, A, the employer, we know that human beings, if they have too many choices, they'll do nothing. <laughs> so they make it a small list for that reason. Um, but down at the bottom of the list, it says, you know, Charles Schwab, PCRA, or self-directed brokerage. That's a way to invest money outside the plan. So it's still in the plan per se. It's still at Wisconsin Deferred Comp, still part of that 457, still has the same rules. But instead of being limited to the investment um, mutual funds they offer, you can go out and pick any mutual fund. Jason Gennier is a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Many, many years as a law enforcement officer. Kind of knows his way around this stuff. We're talking about financial planning for government employees, Wisconsin Deferred Comp Plan, and then this PCRA. Is that something that do you need to be a slightly more sophisticated investor for that? Yeah, I definitely think there's cautions you should take. First off, if you're going to invest outside of your plan, you want to make sure that you have a diversified portfolio. You don't want to be overweight you know, too much in one sector or one asset class because obviously if that one goes down in value, people tend to panic and then they sell off and they try to start timing the market. And that can be a danger with using that self-directed brokerage account if you're not a professional. Right, kind of the do-it-yourselfer thing. But if you've got that option, uh, this is something that Annex does, and a guy like you, with all of your experience, would definitely be able to be a good guide. Yes, you know, we work with quite a few people that are in Wisconsin Deferred Comp and use that Charles Schwab self-directed brokerage option. So the way we engage those clients or those government employees, even if they're still currently working, they don't have to be retired, is our investment policy committee and our investment team here designs portfolios specific for Wisconsin Deferred Comp participants. And then Once they're a client here, they can engage with us, get the full line of financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, all the things that Annex offers with our team. And this is something that you've worked on for years and years, and so you kind of know it. Yeah, I've been, you know, I've been in Annex over five years, and I've been participating in the Wisconsin Deferred Comp, I think, right after I got hired. You've seen the playbook. Yes. You know how that works. So somebody's listening, they're a government employee, and uh, they would like to reach out to Annex, and you in particular, how do we do that? Just go through the website, either send us an email, reach out to us, talk to one of the personnel at the front desk, and they'll um, send you right over my way or another advisor if that's a better fit for you. Just don't get pulled over. Just don't get pulled over. Jason Gadeer, thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's it for our show. Hey, know the difference. Get a plan. Team, technology, trust. Go to AnnexWealth.com. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ Radio, or Scripps Media Incorporated.